Welcome to Beyond. Intrigued by stories of his great-grandfather's bootlegging adventures, Brian Christensen has always had a passion for whiskey. Throughout his decade of experience in marketing, branding, and advertising, he moonlighted in marketing and making beer and wine. Over the years, he's also extensively studied wine and spirit making, which eventually led to him taking the leap from advertising to opening Blinking Owl, Orange County's very first distillery since Prohibition. As a creative visionary with a knack for launching and marketing new products, Brian spearheads the Blinking Owl Distilleries as a CEO. Brian, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, we met at a fundraising event um, a few months back, and I found your story very intriguing. So, so thanks for coming on, and we're looking forward to you know, hearing more about your backstory awesome. and, and what you're working on today. So take us back to your early life that led up to your career. Can you share some stories of, of how this journey got started? Sure, um, without being too long. So it all started, you know, in the back of my mind, I heard these stories about my great-grandfather who bootlegged. I didn't really quite understand what it was when I was younger. As I became an adult, I got into beer, started home brewing. It really interested me. So I did that casually for many, many years. Uh, fast forward a little bit, um, my wife and I got into wine just for fun. We kind of don't do anything intensely, so we started getting into courses through the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, um, studying wine. That led us to get involved in some winemaking projects that were based out of Crush Pad in San Francisco. So through that study led me to learning more about spirits. Um, there's a lot of crossover between brewing and spirit making. Um, so that led me to thinking, getting into the rise of craft distilling or regional distilling throughout the country. Same thing was happening in food. Um, I was curious why nobody in this region had a, approached it yet or done it. So that led to further research and then had this idea with my wife. I'm ready for a career change. I want to open a distillery. Fully expecting her to tell me I'm crazy, out of my mind. Right. Let's don't do this. And that led us to even further research. So I think we visited something like 50 distilleries before we sat and wrote our business plan. I started doing some coursework at distilleries in Seattle. And where were these distilleries at? Were they? All over. So from California, um, yes. Uh, uh, Kentucky, uh, Washington State, um, Utah, anywhere I could find one. Now you had beer, wine, how did you know it was going to be whiskey? Why well, was it whiskey versus anything else? Oh, it started with whiskey because I was into whiskey. It was interesting to me. Yeah. And, and you know, cognac made from wine must and different things. So um, that was the jumping off point and that led into other spirits um, that had some similar crossover to how they were made. So it was like a whole path of um, deep diving into the process of, of distilling uh, from start to finish. And when I say start to finish, from sourcing your base material to milling it if it's grain or uh, fermenting it all the way through distilling it. So. so you're like really a chemist extraordinary. I mean, you have to know so much. You have to know so much. So I wouldn't say chemist extraordinaire, I'd say I know enough to be dangerous. And then I filled in the gaps with people who were smarter than me to, right. so I don't burn anything down or blow anything up. So in this process of it's like, I'm doing a career jump and I want to do something different, what were some of the, the harder lessons or things you learned the hard way? Oh man, the list is endless. But um, you don't know what you don't know. Um, things like I'd never managed a, a Architect, architect, architect plans, never, you know, started with nothing, found a space, leased a space, found architects, engineers, that was all troublesome, you know, hiring contractors, overseeing an entire project was overwhelming and forced me to grow as a person. Right. My wife as well, the whole team, just, there's, no matter how well you plan, there's un... There's circumstances you can't control Things or predict. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you look at corporate America and they, you put in a resume, they want certain qualifications and they won't even consider you unless you have those qualifications. And to me, that's total bullshit, right? Uh, because what you just course. said was, I don't know anything about these, this process of you know finding a facility, qualifying the facility and everything that's entailed in that. But what you just said was you figured it out and you grew as a person and God, when you go see Blinking Out, it's an amazing place. But you know, most of corporate America is sort of in this paradigm of, 
you know, this, this way of thinking that they have to have a certain level of success. And the reality is they can bring people in that think outside the box, maybe have a different skill set, and they could just rock that position. I totally agree. I think coming from a creative background allowed me to think creatively. Um, yeah. You know, and you also have to grow in your personal awareness and know what you can't do. And I, it forces you, if you're being honest with yourself, to identify your weaknesses really quickly sure. and then find a way to fill those in. And having my wife, and who's also my business partner, buy in, we're a good complement to one another. You know, we're in areas where I'm not as good she's great and vice versa so and that's a beautiful lesson it's true it probably makes her a successful marriage too it, it <laughs> does i mean you know uh there were points and are points where it strains it but we've worked through those and become stronger the joke is we tell each other we could survive a home or kitchen remodel now right so, right. so take us back a little about the, some of the lessons you learned in your early life that you can apply in business today it seems to me your, your grandfather in in, in bootlegging says there's some element of risk that you've, you know, maybe that you uh, genetically got encoded into you. Exactly. So when, you know, we don't have documented history because they didn't document illegal activity, but we have a right. oral history, right? So it actually, in the terms of the family, was kind of looked down upon. They didn't like to talk about it. Um, and my mom would tell me these stories. So it was really interesting. He was in Pilgrim, Nebraska. He was a dairy farmer. And after Prohibition, there was a need. You know, people wanted to drink. Sure. So people, you know, the economy wasn't great. He was a dairy farmer. He built this giant house, and it made no sense to people. How does this dairy farmer afford this? Well, come to find out, he had the still or the operation in the basement, and he somehow tied it into the irrigation system for the farm, for the cows. So to make it appear as if it was just part of the working farm. Um, you know, yeah, risk. He's so a he risk taker. Smart, clever. And, you know, a little bit shady as well. So, um, and, you know, my mom remembers when she was a kid, he obviously wasn't distilling anymore, but he distilled through Prohibition and up until the end of the Second World War. So after Prohibition ended, it was taxed so high, you know, you're in a poor rural community or not as affluent, so he would still sell to all the neighbors or whoever wanted to consume. So I think um, it was like creativity, you know, you're being resourceful, um, and it's just kind of a cool story to, you know, you had this edgy, edgy yeah. person in your past. Um, and unfortunately, you know, he passed away when I was a very young child, so I don't, I didn't get to spend time asking him, but my grandfather um, who grew up on that farm you know he had distinct stories of you know farm life was rough one time a cow fell over and broke his femur I believe it was mm -hmm. and you know he said yep they would just give you whiskey or whatever the alcohol was and say bite this right. stick and we're gonna set that yeah. you know leg back in place so now fast forward you're like oh that was whiskey that he made illegally yeah, so. right. You know what's funny about prohibition? They actually um, whiskey was legal. There was for, for medicinal for, for medicinal for medical yep. purposes. It was legal back in the day. But you know it's interesting. So how, so you heard these stories growing up with your grandfather, which is just magnified. And your great grandfather now is a sort of this maybe mythic person. Sure. In your mind, because you're young, 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 impressionable, right? So how did that experience um, inspire your entrepreneurial sort of drive? You know I don't know a where it comes from. Growing up, I think I learned the most valuable lessons from silly things like skateboarding and snowboarding. I spent a, a lot of time outdoors. And if you get into those sports, you constantly are falling down and getting hurt. And to be successful, you have to do it again and again. So you keep taking that risk over and over again. So physically, a long time, things were not risky. And as I got older, it, you know, that would get in you know, you become an independent person and you apply those same principles throughout your life. So I didn't want to be afraid or ever felt like I had to be stuck into one job or one position. So I, I love art and design, but I never felt like that was all I was. Then many years later, I met my wife who was just an entrepreneur from the get-go. So that was freeing for me too because she would never 
she's completely risk averse when it comes to if you really want to do something, plan it and if it makes sense, go for it. So, yeah. so that's like, you know, I, I was already in line with that, but meeting her, I mean, she has never worked for anybody since she graduated university. So, I don't blame her. So, <laughs> I don't think she could now, yeah. but you know. I don't blame her. It, so, uh, it's overrated, except yeah, you get a yeah. paycheck. Yes, yeah. yes. So um, I, I think it's just a culmination of, of things, you know, the mythical stories, uh, growing up having parents that allowed me to do you know these things that weren't that popular back then they weren't big multi-million dollar sports like they are now right and not that I ever had you know to be the next Tony Hawk yeah or, right. but just the fact of being a participant and yeah. the things you wanted to do and to get you know somewhat proficient at it it's you're falling down you're taking risks you're you know running from police when you're skateboarding. It's just fun stuff like that, that you're like, you know, I'm never gonna know if, unless I do it. You so. Know, so that, you know, next question then is, what was your inspiration for founding Blinking Owl in particular? I mean, I mean, think about it, let's, let's sort of set this up. I mean, you got a, you got a consistent, predictable job, yes. that's certain. Mm -hmm. You got money coming in, you got benefits, and you have this background of, you know, my great-grandfather was a bootlegger, did this, and that's inspirational on probably many levels. And it spoke to you because you were involved in it in some level, but not in a commercial sense, making money and supporting your family. So what was that moment where you said, we're gonna go do this? I think through those, the studying of wine and learning about spirits and on my own reading about spirits, buying, trying different things and thinking, wow, this is such a fulfilling thing from the whole aspect of the way we wanted to do it is the people, the community, how you could support it from working with farmers all the way up to sourcing something and seeing what you make or what you give birth to. Um, uh, it's its own motivation. It's its own motivation yeah. and I think there's a freedom to it even though you know I work more now than I ever have in my entire life but there's it's freeing and you, oh well, even more so, what a, I think backtracking, a couple of things. Um, my wife and I don't have any children and so we don't feel the pressure that we can't take risks like this, right? So we can take care of ourselves and um, so we don't have that additional burden. But, you know, once you have employees, it's like having kids because now, you, exactly. So let me stop you. So you, you want to go do this thing. So sitting here today, how much did you have to learn when you said, I'm gonna go do this, I'm gonna do, find blinking out? From that point to this day, is, do you like know 80% more or? Oh, a, a hundred times more, so. So in other words, you weren't, you didn't have all the skill sets or knowledge to go do that, so that's even a bigger risk. I mean, let's be honest, it's not like you were a, you, you've done this before four or five times and you're just applying the skill sets, you're taking, it's like jumping out of a plane with an iffy parachute. Yes, a hundred percent. So. I'm not from this industry, never made whiskey. I made beer and wine at an amateurish level, you know, with, you know, knowledge. So yeah. I basically just got my hands on any information I could personally in my spare time for fun. I'd read books, I'd visit, I'd talk to people. And then when I thought, okay, this might become an idea, I had done a lot of research like I stated earlier, I sat my wife down and said, I want to do this. And she said, okay. At that point, then it was even more research and study, doing coursework, hands-on coursework, learning. And then that's identifying what I felt comfortable with to start this business and what I didn't, finding the right people to fill the gaps in or, or help me. So one, there wasn't a five-year learning curve. Two, I could this to be a business that's eventually sustainable and not just an expensive hobby right because I remember visiting a winery once and one of the wine owners was like man this you've got to think about it and I think he said something like it can either be a business or a, a very expensive hobby because you know there's a lot of wealthy guys who buy wineries because they need to, a loss or a write-off <laughs> so um, and uh, I don't that's not what I did. So really it was just educating myself as much as I could 
um, and and my wife as well, and learning um, and and visiting people, just any information people were willing to share, um, and knowing there would be bumps in the road, or we don't know everything, but that's okay. We can figure it out. Yeah. So. Well, you know what's funny about the wine business? It's a misnomer. People think, oh, you're you're on a vineyard and you got wine and you're making bank and you're barely on the margin. You're barely, I mean, you're sometimes operating at a loss. Um, there, there's so many dynamics and variables and to get a club going and get people to come back and, and, and just the varietals and the grapes and the packaging and the cost. I was working with a guy whose family had their winery up in Napa and it was a disaster. I mean, they were losing money. So they brought him in because he was a business guy and he was trying to rewrite the ship. So it's not an easy business to, uh, it's, to, to contemplate getting into. It's not easy. And if I knew what I knew now, I'd probably don't know that we would have done it. It's, right. it's, but I think that's part of anybody who starts their own business. You, you can't know everything. But that's part of the fun, I think. It's that unknown, that risk, and then the challenges that you bust through, that next yes. level of challenge. I, I think being a little naive is the only way to be if you're going to take a risk. Right. Um, also, I think it gives you uh, an advantage creatively because rather than be the typical corporate or big business distillery, they think about things in this way because they think it's proven, whereas all these young distilleries are, are thinking how can they innovate or with a different perspective. Um, you know, we try to take a very creative approach to how we do things. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a perfect answer, it's just a culmination of trying to be prepared, being a little bit crazy. Maybe some people would call it stupid, but but naive, I think it, you, you have to be. You, you have to think bigger than you actually are, and you really have to believe you can do it, or then there's no point. Yeah, but you also put a lot of planning and prep in there. But yes, so yes. We met when you were trying to raise funds for the business. So you have the physical structure of the business, the labeling, the marketing, the spirits. You're nailing that. You're hitting it, you know, at all points, roughly. Um, but then you got the big thing called capital to run your business, right? So talk to us a little about how difficult it is to raise capital in the spirits business. Okay. So well, I'll give you this in two phases. So um, our startup was really weird. Well. It's kind of a cool story. Uh, we wrote this business plan. My wife and I took six months. We rewrote it about five times. The first couple iterations got ripped apart. Uh, one by friends, uh, our attorney. So, you know, that in itself we did over and over and over. And business plans don't predict the future. So we got to the point, we had a good one. Uh, we went out, we were pitching people. It was very difficult. I'd never done it before. I never asked people for money. So out of the blue, Hogue Hospital approached my wife to buy her former business, which was specialty health physical therapy practices. So they outright bought her clinics, um, and she oversaw and consulted for them. So we took that as a base seed. Then we had a friend who learned about our project who's an actress. Uh, her name's Kirsten Banksness, and she wanted to be involved, so she matched our funds, and then her mom also liked the project. So there were th the four of us that started with the seed round. Sort of friends and family. Y yeah. Yes. Um, so then from there, we had enough in the beginning. We got through permitting construction. That was a task in itself. And we got to the point where we're operational, we're putting product in the market. Uh, there's a lot of regulatory stuff, so we needed to raise more money, um, and that's difficult uh, from every aspect. Where do you go? I don't. Who do you pick up on the phone and call to raise money? So we started. You know, you look for online resources. You talk to people. You ask for references. So I mean, to this day, we probably still take one or two potential investor meetings a week. Um, and we met at one, we pitched to a big group. Um, it can be intimidating, you know, they ask questions, they want to drill down in your finances and you have to have good coherent answers for them. Right. Um, and if that doesn't pan out, where do you go next? So it, it's a lot of strange networking or sometimes we've 
had additional investors who were just fans who show up, they come and visit us at the tasting room, and they ask. They say, oh, is there an opportunity? I love what you guys are doing. I want to be in. So uh, we, it's not easy, though. Like We've no. had multiple groups come and say, we're in. We want to close the round out. They either can't get the funds together or they change their mind. They lose interest. You know, it's it, like the bridesmaid. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's frustrating. It's like hitting your head against the wall. And then that's where I think kind of, it sounds silly, but if you get into some type of sport and you fall down and you get hurt and you get back up and do it again, it's the same thing. So you're like, okay, today didn't go so well. I'll soak for a minute. Get it out of my system. You really do. Yeah, can't take it personal. It's it's kind of like I admire athletes who play at a high level because if they're going to be successful, you got to have failures and just keep doing it. So, so you guys in the seed round still? Are you guys in the A round or we're in our second round? Um, So it's uh, we opened a second round of funding. Uh, We were aiming to raise one point two. We're about halfway through it. so um, we're looking to finish the round out. Um, and the money's for what? You're marked for what? Um, a couple of things. Uh, primarily, we need to add a kitchen because if we add a kitchen, it expands our license. Right now, under California law, we're limited in what we can sell. Um, we also have a lot of people feedback from customers that were like, even if you offered small food, we'd stay, and spend more money. Thing, yeah. So <laughs> for us, it's a cash flow thing. We have to have it. it yeah. Um, it expands our license, um, and there's other things. We need to put some more money into marketing, uh, increase our sales team, um, and produce more whiskey. Yeah. Um, I, while we have a, we're getting into our stocks, we need more. Yeah. So, and whiskey is like cash in a barrel that you have to wait. Yeah, you got to sit on it. Sit on it, yeah. and, and and so these are the things we're going to use. And you got a growing for. fan base, so you got to exactly. supply that, and so there's some dynamics going on. So let's talk about some of the uh, the different types of spirits you offer here. What, what do we have on the ca- table okay. here? Okay, so a uh, little bit about what we make. Uh, everything is based around telling a California story. So everything's made from organic California grown grain. And here's one of those things. You thought, I thought, oh, we opened this distillery. We're just going to call up the farmer and say, hey, is there <laughs> this type of grain available? And that's not the case. So it took us about a year and a half before we could become 100% uh, organic source. Now, it's not about being an organic certified product. It's more about supporting farmers who are using good sustainable practices for the earth and that type of thing. Right. Um, so we make everything from vodka. Uh, we have this OC orange vodka that's really cool. We use locally grown oranges to flavor it. Mm-hmm. 150 pounds of Valencia oranges grown right here in Orange County. Which one's this one here? It's this one right here. You get that? It's really cool. Um, we're in Orange County. I wanted to make something that spoke to the agricultural history. It's absolutely delicious. Um, this Aquavit is our number one seller so far. So. Part of my family has Scandinavian heritage, Swedish specifically. So when I was doing the research and all of this distilling, I came across a spirit called Aquavit. And I had a friend who was living in Sweden, so she would start to bring me some, and I fell in love with it. And I'm, no one was making it here when we were doing our research at the time. So I, the two main things when we came up with a business plan I wanted to make was Aquavit and whiskey. Mm-hmm. And so far, it's uh, now, our number one Now, what's the difference between Aquavit and whiskey? So, Aquavit, so it, it, spirits get tricky. All spirits have their own legal requirements as to how they can be made, labeled, and marketed. So, Aquavit, it's basically, this is how it's uh, categorized. It has to be made from a base distillate of grain or potato, and then the required flavoring component is caraway seed and or dill and then whatever additional botanicals you choose to add. So ours is modeled after classic Danish and Swedish style. It's heavy in the caraway seed, fresh dill, uh, hibiscus flower because it's the flower of Santa Ana where we distill it, and then fennel seed because it's a very Swedish uh, ingredient to have in your aquavit. Um, So it's a really herbal uh, kind of cleansing 
palate, spirit, um, and bartenders love it. It's actually growing in popularity in the United States right now because of the craft cocktail culture. Right. So uh, it's really good. Um, this is a barrel finished gin we make. Um, uh, it's in an old Tom style. That just means a gin that's a sweeter style. Mm -hmm. The cool thing is we source late harvest dessert wine barrels that come from Napa. When we, when we get the barrels, there's about a gallon of residual wine in the barrel. So we let the gin finish in uh, the barrel for about three months. Now the federal government doesn't allow you currently to call gin aged. So I came up with marketing background, this, this term barrel vacationed, which I tell people we <laughs> send gin on vacation and it comes back sweeter and with a tan. I love like it. Like most people. That is clever. And then whiskeys. Um, so we had to wait at least two years for the type of whiskey we wanted to make. Um, uh, the first whiskeys we've released uh, are, uh, we have a couple types of bourbon or recipes, but bourbon and rye and malt whiskey are the types of whiskey we make. So um, what we have here is our first, what we call a weeded bourbon. And all that means is, is the mash bill is made from, so for if those that don't know bourbon, bourbon is, a spirit that has to be made in the United States. It's a protected commodity. So it can be made anywhere. It doesn't have to be made in Kentucky like many people think. But it has to be made from at least 51% corn. Mm -hmm. um, it has to be aged in white oak barrels that have been charred. And then if you're going to call it a straight bourbon whiskey like we have here, you have to age it at minimum two years. So you can imagine you're spending all this money making whiskey, and the way we want to make it, we have to wait at least two years. And then our whiskey will, will keep some aging beyond that. So that's an interesting business plan because you've got an aging process you've got to factor in to you know, supply the market. So exactly. it's two years on pause and then. Yes. So we're going to try this. Yes. Um, let's check it out. I think it was a hit the last uh, investor presentation because I think you gave them the product before the presentation. And we offered it, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, tr I hope they drank more, but you know, they were yeah. on to my uh, plan. So. Salute. So, cheers. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah. this is uh, our weeded bourbon, like I said. Um, it's pretty limited in release, uh, but more will be coming available. The cool thing, which I did not know, uh, once we opened, a bunch of local historians came in and they had done all this research about distilling and prohibition in Orange County. What we discovered is they found that nobody, well, they didn't distill anything other than fruit-based distillate here before prohibition uh, because that's what they had excess of. Mm -hmm. So there were whiskey brands here, but it was sourced by merchants and sold under brand names, but it wasn't made here. So these historians believe that we made what they believe the first ever legally distilled and aged whiskeys in Orange County uh, when we first started. So, That's a pr so it's pretty cool. How'd you guys come up with Blinking Owl? So um, this is, I'll make this story as brief as possible. Um, so I'm not originally from Orange County, so, but we've, my wife and I have lived here since about 2000. We didn't know that Santa Ana had some type of stigma associated with it with Orange County. So we moved there we, in 2003, and we met some people who lived there, and they taught us all about the long, rich history of Santa Ana and how it used to ha have a thriving downtown with department stores and restaurants and bars. Well, one of these bars, it's some period from about 1960 to the middle of the 70s was the Blinking Owl Bar and it was located at 3rd and Birch Street which is now a parking structure unfortunately but it was known for its neon and mechanical sign with an owl that would blink so I thought wow that's just the funnest name like I wonder if I could ever do Unique. something yeah. and it kind of pays homage to the city where we distill it so that's kind of where the concept behind the Blinking Owl uh, came from so eventually we'll do a remake of that original sign. We've only been able to locate some blurry photos of it so far, but we've had people visit us who used to go to that <clears> bar. And they remember it. They remember it, yep. So when I first went to the Blinking Eye, I'm blown away, because if, if you go, 
if you go to the Blinking Owl, it's a nice place. I mean, you guys have done an awesome job there. So when you go there, is there a tasting room? There's a tasting room, yes. So uh, we have t a tasting room. Uh, it's open Thursday through Sunday, um, and the hours are, are somewhat limited. Um, Thursday would be 5 to 9, Saturday, or Thursday, Friday, 5 to 9. Saturday is from 12.30 to 9 and Sunday from two to six. The, the, all the hours are on our website. Uh, I can't keep track of them, everything. But uh, So we offer a tasting room. Um, you can taste a flight of spirits or you can taste a spirit in a cocktail. And this is why we're adding a kitchen because right now California law limits us to the amount we can serve you. And they limit it to 1.5 ounces per person per day. But this is an improvement because when we started this process, this license type did not exist. It's called a Type 74. Okay. And before the state created this, you couldn't taste more than 0.75 ounces of alcohol at a distillery. You couldn't taste it in anything that resembled a cocktail. And you couldn't purchase any bottles at the tasting room. Now we can sell you up to three bottles per person per day out of the tasting room. So, and with the kitchen, are you able to serve more? Yep, we're Is not limited. They treat us like a bona fide eating place once we have a kitchen. So that's so why it's important. Are you able important. to offer parties there now? Yes, or we how does private that work? events. We can do private events. So you just have to schedule private events ahead of time. Um, if you've arranged for a private event, then we can. You're not limited to the ounce and a half of alcohol per person. So we have a nice patio. On the we back. do events. Weekly corporate so, events, corporate events, private events, birthday parties, whatever you want to celebrate. Just make sure you. And how do they get to your website? What is the website? So our website is blinkingowldistillery.com. Um, we're on Instagram at blinkingowl. Um, all the contact information is on there. Uh, it's pretty simple. If you want to know about events, just email events at blinkingowl.com. General inquiries, just email info at blinkingowl.com. Okay. So. And as part of people going there, do you offer any kind of memberships to whiskey enthusiasts? Yes, we currently have a whiskey club membership. It's sold out for this year. Uh, it's called our Parliament Club. The reason... Wait, wait, wait. How, how can it be sold out? Is there a limitation so that you put on? Or? We put a limitation on it because it Supply? includes certain limited barrel releases. So there's Got only it. so many bottles in that barrel. This yeah. is one of those. This is the first bottle offered to our uh, Whiskey Club Parliament members. It's our first single barrel release of our weeded bourbon and they'll get a bottle from our first barrel of three-year-old bourbon that will get released in a this few weeks. This is crazy by the way, this is crazy good. Uh, yeah. We can talk about yeah. whiskey but I don't, I mean, in depth. So our Parliament Club, why the Parliament? A Parliament is a group of owls. So we have fun with that. So next year will launch, it will become available sometime in November for the 2020-2021 uh, year of Parliament memberships. So um, keep your eye out for that if you're interested because there are limited memberships available. So Good, I like it. So what is the five-year plan for Blinking Out? So um, the basic plan is one, to get to, uh, to break even, which we're close to. We've already done it a couple of uh, months, um, but to grow to the point where we're sustainable, we're in multi-state distribution. Um, uh, Are you distributing out of state today? Uh, just to one state, Illinois, but we're working on growing and expanding into several other states, as well as being exported to a few other countries as well. Um, to, we would like to be in five years producing 25,000 nine liter cases. Um, we're probably close to around 3,500 nine-liter cases right now. Mm -hmm. uh, currently, our system as is has the capacity to do 10,000 nine-liter cases without any additional equipment. So we, when we plan the business plan, we plan for five to 10 years worth of what our projected growth would be. So we're not quite growing as rapidly as we want, but we're picking up steam, steam fast. And can your current location um, manage the, the growth that you anticipate? Or do you have to have other? So the actual production can. We'll have to add a second still to get from 10,000 to 25,000 cases location. at the same location. It's already been planned for and designed. The only part we need to expand in the short term would be barrel storage for whiskey. So once we fill up our space now, we'll have to get, expand further into the building we're currently in or get an off-site storage facility. Okay. So yes, 
we would like to be in at least the top five to 10 markets in the United States in the next five years um, and at that 25,000 nine liter case production, if not surpass that. So, and are you going to add any other lines? Um, yes, we're probably we're experimenting R and Ding um, some Amaros, some other specialty liquors. Uh, our core will be our vodka, our gin, our aquavit, and whiskeys. Um, so we'll keep those, and we'll have some seasonal tasting room distillery releases only as well. So uh, we're trying to continue to build the experience at the distillery for people to visit as well. Uh, we want them to come and learn about distilling our practices. We're pretty transparent. We're open about how we do things, where we source our product, our base materials from. Um, we don't do things the easy way. We, you know, it would be easier and cheaper to buy commodity grain out of the Midwest. Right. Um, it would, you know, we buy baker's wheat because it's more flavorful, it tastes better. Um, we buy all of our malted barley, which we use in all of our products from Admiral Malting, which is the, currently the only malting facility in California. So yeah, we're, um, we're committed to making a high quality product that's also supporting the local grain economy, farming community, um, trying to keep, you know, supporting other businesses in California as well. So if you're the only distillery since Prohibition, do you have competitors on the horizon? Yes, we've had several add uh, since uh, we are, we've been distilling three years. We're about to have our three-year anniversary being open to the public. And I'm not sure what the current number is. There's three other distillers currently in Orange County, uh, but their facilities are much smaller than ours. Um, not that they wouldn't grow, um, but yes. And there's a lot of, I mean, even in California generally, it's rapidly growing. A lot of people are jumping into it. Um, you know, we're, we try to help other distilleries as much as we can. Um, I get a lot of people who come probably once or twice a week who say, I want to open a distillery. And I try to give them whatever advice I can. A lot of them say, well, I want to open one because I like drinking whiskey or rum. Or, <laughs> and I tell them, that's a bad idea. Yeah. Don't, don't do it. And I also tell a lot of people, you're going to need way more money than you, you think. think you do. Right. I mean, even us planning for, you know, almost... 75% more than we thought we needed, it still wasn't enough. Still not enough. So you've got to really think big picture. We're, we're, we come across as being ultra successful. And I think we are building toward being a successful name, but, it, but it, you have to be relentless and keep working. And you can't be afraid also, I try to tell people to bring investors on. It's great. It would have been awesome if we could keep it to the four founding members. But what we're learning is we like our investment team. They're bringing good, you know, they're, che they're great cheerleaders. They're bringing good insight. Um, they're spreading the word. So I wouldn't be afraid of, of bringing people on to help you in your business. You know? Yeah. And I think you need those kind of investors. You need people that can help you grow your business to, from one level to the next because 25,000 to 30,000 barrels is a different business plan than where you're at today. Of course. And the demands in the business are extremely different. So the idea that you can identify investors that can really add value beyond just the money, um, I think is critical. I mean, it, it, especially your long-term success. It, absolutely. And, and I think another point to be made is like, because you wrote that initial business plan, that thing changes all the time, so you gotta look at it it's and update document. it, yeah. and it changes weekly. Yeah. But back to that thing, people who approach me and want to get into it, yes, we try to give them sage advice, but don't do it because you like drinking something. You think you're passionate, and you might be about making it, but man. Well, startups will whittle away that passion really yes, quick, and reality yes. hits, rubber hits the road. You gotta, you gotta have a different motivation and insight and what I appreciate about what you said earlier is you really did your homework. You really, before you jumped into it and took that risk, you really did your homework and learned as much as you could. I remember I was listening to Elon Musk and when he started SpaceX, the guy goes, did you always know this much about rockets? He goes, no, I just read a lot of books. Now, obviously he's otherworldly bright. Some people yes. think he's an alien, he might be. <laughs> but you know, the idea that you 
don't know something and you have some aptitude. And he just said, no, I just read as many books on rockets and everything I could think of. Because even his friends were like, why would you want to get in the rocket business? And they sent him some videos on rockets exploding, right? You know, and he was at a point where on his fourth launch, if it didn't happen, SpaceX wouldn't have happened. Um, so the reason you get into something has to be, I don't know if pure is the right word, but you got to be clear eyed because it's not easy doing what you did. It's not. And that brings up a good point. A lot of people who think they want to do this don't realize the inherent danger that distilling alcohol is. I mean, you need, if you're going to process grain, grain is flammable and explosive. Distilling can become, we're making a flammable explosive product. So if your equipment's not engineered and built properly, installed properly, or run properly, then the you're creating a, yeah. a, a, a major hazard. I'll give you a good example. While we were in permitting, which was, that's a whole other story, which was not easy, a distillery in Kentucky blew up, leveled, killed one individual and burnt the other employee over 90% of his body because they had bought a still from a person who lived down in the area of them who made a crude version of a still that worked, but it had a pressure, it wasn't engineered properly. It had a faulty pressure relief valve that he installed that he bought from Home Depot. Pressure built up, boom. boom. Yeah, it's, so, it's a bomb. So, it, it, you know, we took all these things into account. We basically went out and I figured if I'm gonna invest and really do this, I gotta find the best equipment that's on the market that we can afford. There's guys entering the market now. There's about 20 more still manufacturers that you can get. But I went with a company out of Germany that's been building stills for almost 200 years. Yeah. And they have a track record of it's safety. Important. And so there, there is, a t talking about doing your homework and your research, you really have to get into it. I visited not only distilleries, but equipment manufacturers and how much support do they give you? Kind, of, you know, what resources do they have? So, our still manufacturer, they have systems all over the world. So, when we have questions, can we can call it. them, and yeah. they can call and say, "Have you thought about this or this?" And here was a cool thing too. So, a lot of distilleries I met that were about the size of startup we were aiming for would say, "You should get double the size of your still because we're growing so fast. You need, you need a system that's double what you." that is. So we were about ready to do that. And then I met this still manufacturer. We talked. We took our business plan with them and reversed engineered it from 10 years down to startup. Nice. And they said, you don't need a still that big. Um, we oh yeah, we're going to grow so fast. We need it. it. They're like, you don't need it. It was kind of hard to hear. And we're like, you're not in manufacturing here, man. Come They're on. like, we got systems <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. And then they broke it down and they said, well, think about it. You're not going to start out at the gate making that much product. You, you can't. Okay, that's a good point. So why are you going to waste all these resources running through a bigger system in terms of gas to make steam and water? You're going to be losing money you don't need it and they were absolutely 100% right think what a great partner think about running efficiencies in this way let us be your guide because we know this and so that was awesome yeah that's huge save yeah. a lot of money yeah so we spend more on the equipment than other people but the things we get in return it's invaluable so so what is the one or two reasons that you give somebody to start a distillery or whiskey business if you looked in the camera and said, you do it for these one or two reasons, what would that be? I'd say you really, one, you have to have an interest in the entire process or be a marketing brand, source your product and make a label, become an expert in blending. Um, part of the draw for us was not only, uh, we like to handle every part of the process from sourcing the grain, meeting the farmers, the people who grow it, which we've met many, many of our farmers to bring it in in-house and making th it exactly our way to our specs. Um, you have to really like that level of detail or you're gonna hate it really quickly because your passion can turn into your biggest nightmare oh, yeah. real quickly. Double-edged sword. So, um, and you have to like this industry and you have to know I mean, you're in the alcohol industry. You have to have some level of control in this 
business where it could get Who out of hand. Who regulates alcohol? I mean, from um, a, what's in its standpoint? So we're regulated by the Tax and Trade Bureau at the government uh, federal level, mm -hmm. and then each state has their own alcohol control. So we're overseen by the federal government and the state alcohol beverage control. And does the state come in and say, we know that the ingredients in this label is in fact what it is? So they mostly let the federal government handle that, and then they manage it more in terms of, they can come do that, but they refer to the feds as Do the feds come in made. and inspect you yes. to make sure you look at your quality documents, your records, they that do. you're doing what you say you're going to do each batch? Absolutely. So we got audited by the federal government in our first six months of being opened, mm -hmm. which scared us to death, but I figured this is a good learning opportunity. I'd rather learn this now than five years in and have some yeah, tax liability, yeah. exactly. Absolutely. So we have to track every single piece of grain that comes into our facility and every single drop of alcohol that leaves. So um, we file reports monthly based on what we've produced, what we are storing, and what we're selling. So it's one of the most highly taxed commodities in the United States. What is the tax on a bottle? Roughly? Well, right now, that's a good question. Um, it's taxed on proof gallons. So currently uh, we had a temporary relief for small distilleries in this country, a federal excise tax reduction, which is up, we're trying to get it renewed, uh, but it's uh, approximately $13.11 per proof gallon, which is really high. So this current tax reduction that's in place reduces that for your first 250,000 gallons, which were nowhere close to producing that much, to sure. $2. So it's allowed us, in the first two years of this tax reduction, to hire a full-time salesperson. So it's really... It's a big deal. It's really beneficial. Yeah. That's why we're very involved in trade organizations that help start up young distilleries like us. It's amazing. I meet a lot of small distillers who don't want to get involved in these things because they think paying $500 annually is too much money, which I understand. And I always tell them, if you can't afford, you can't afford not to join this trade organization because nothing gets done without going through the proper political channels. Right. And so it's a hard conversation. I try to tell them, you've got to join these things. It's crucial. Like 13 a proof gallon to $2. We save thousands quarterly on our excise tax that allows us to put it back into the business and support growth in our business. Right, phenomenal. So let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Who's that person? I mean, you're you're an amazing guy. I mean, this is. I mean, I've never met somebody in the distillery business or the alcohol business that went from one career to this. So I, hats off to you. Kudos to you. Um, who's that person who's had the most influence or persons in your life? So this I've thought about this a lot, um, and it's multiple people. Um, I would say one, my wife, because she's entrepreneurial and she never says, no, we can't do that. It's like, well, let's have a plan. And she went from the medical into yep. the distilling She business, calls right? it healthcare to wellness. <laughs> <laughs> so well, um, I think we have a strong group of friends that are, our close group are very entrepreneurial. So we're, we've always been surrounded by people that do their own thing. Um, they, and that's the norm. They have their, that's normal. So when we go to dinner, we have people we can talk to about business and, oh, I've got this issue, I've got this. We've s seen multiple of our friends struggle and then all of a sudden be successful in their business. So um, it's, it's kind of my close friends and family, just learning through them, you know, not having to live it and sage right. advice as well as, you know, our families have gotten behind us always like that's awesome it's a huge risk i don't want to take it but we think it's we great yeah absolutely. if things don't work out you can always live in <laughs> our parents basement again you know and have a great story exactly great story. so I, I think the thing that's hard is you have to get comfortable with the parts of the business you fail and those people we look up to which are our friends um support us yeah they're like well yeah maybe you made a mistake there but not everything you've done is the wrong thing to do so so give you some perspective exactly the crazy yeah. absolutely absolutely you know it's yeah 
so without naming them all specifically, they know who they are. They know but, who they are. Yes. Yeah. You're here. For, yeah. So what are one or two pearls of wisdoms that you could offer people listening, whether it be their personal or professional life, that they took that advice it really enhanced their effectiveness? Oh, so I would say try to be as self-aware as you can. So I'm not perfect. You make mistakes, get over the mistakes and learn from them. Yeah. Um, you're gonna make mistakes. And if not, then you know something that nobody else knows. Um, uh, but don't let it, don't let making a mistake stop you from making decisions in the future. I also think it's, because I still struggle with this, you gotta find people to work with. You can't do everything yourself. I mean, I can't hire all the people I want or need, but at some point you have to pass things off to other people and trust them. And they may work out, they may not. Um, and it takes time to, to build your team, right? So every time you feel like you've got this perfect team, and right now I have a perfect team of people, you don't want that person to go on and do the next step in their life. You just got to let it happen because what you find is, oh my gosh, there's other good people to fill in that, that role. There's the right talent at the right time. Exactly. Based on the stage of your business. Yeah. And I think for me, it's always trying, always trying to be a little bit better every single day. That might not always happen, but always try, right? I, I think a lot of this is you you gotta keep doing it. Mm -hmm. you, there's gonna be days you don't wanna go to work. You're like, oh my, are we, are we, are we losers? What have we done? We're, are we failing? But you just have to get up and keep doing it. Keep, you fall, you gotta get back up and keep trying it again and again. Right. Because if snowboarding and skateboarding and other things taught me anything, eventually all of a sudden- It's gonna hit. It hits and yeah. You're like, how did that happen? And then you do it again and again, and you're like, it keeps happening. So I remember this guy, he was, he was like a BMX. He, he started the bigger ramp in BMX, and he was out in Oklahoma. I don't know. I can't remember his name. He was profiled in ESPN. Mm -hmm. And he got his bike up to 30 feet above the deck, and he landed. But in that story, he's like, yeah, you just kept doing it again and again. And he busted his spleen. I mean, he Dang, wrecked his body. But he, he, his point was, yeah, I failed, but I just keep going at it. And he would jack up his face or break an arm, come back and do it again and again. It's just repetitive. And eventually he, he came to the big air event, which became the X Games. Yes. And yeah, it, it, but it was really an homage to him because everybody said, yeah, you're the dude that started this. You're the one that paved the way. But the whole point you're making is, yeah, you can't look at today what's going on. It's sort of like big picture. And yeah, it's a bad day. It's just another tricky day. And you just got to say, I'll, I'll shelve it. I'll take the lesson, but the, I believe in the plan. I got to keep just in the business plan. But fundamentally, if you go to blinking out, I don't get any of that vibe. What you're saying, what I get is an amazing business, a great concept, and a great vibe when you go there. But, and that's what you should have, yeah. you know? And that's what we're creating. We want you to have that. We'll deal with the setbacks. Now, I saw a picture them. with the full head of hair and it's dark. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So then the stress, hair, you know, yes. there's that. I'm, I'm turning <laughs> wider and grayer and, and much startups, faster. Man, that's startups. It is, you know, well, that, to that point, startups or people you got at some point you have to take care of yourself too so you know the first year i think i gained 20 pounds stressed out oh, yeah. eating oh. and then finally it hit it's like the stress is going to be there you take 45 minutes to an hour every morning the world's not going to stop without you we're not that important right the email can wait 30 minutes in most cases an hour take care of yourself just a little thing so we started doing that you know eating healthier you know run every other day do whatever it is that you have to do to take care of yourself yeah because the business it can't be healthy if you're not healthy that's well said that's, so, that's powerful. powerful so um and you you know you're the leader of the business you know and sometimes you're going to make good leadership choices and sometimes you're not and in my business, it's unique that we've got the mom and dad of the business that are there day to day. So the employees treat us like mom and dad. Sometimes they don't get the answer from dad, so they go ask mom, right? <laughs> right. Play one off the other. If you can go back and give yourself advice, what would it be? <sighs> uh, probably, you know, let's raise even more money. Don't try to 
be stuck in the build has to be this way where we have 80% of the company like allow other people to come in and from the startup phase and also um, oh, there's a lot of little things yeah um, just get prepared mentally for how the f well you're a startup you know this it's not going to be easy I don't think we ever expected it to be easy um, but you never have any idea what it's going to be until you're in the you, thick of it. You don't. I also think I would have told myself um, to not be as ambitious, like try to grow to a little at a slower pace, you know. But I, I don't know if that's good advice either. So. <laughs> and is it in your DNA to do that? It's not in my, yeah, it's not. I mean, you're a risk taker by, uh, by uh, definition. Uh, uh, Yes, yes. So slow, what's that? Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. Um, or maybe don't be as naive, I don't know. Um, I, I definitely think to make sure um, to, and not that we didn't, but you know, take time for my relationship with my wife that, you know, because the first year was really hard on both of us and mm -hmm. not because of us but because of the business but be aware that we have a relationship outside of the business relationship so you get a unique dynamic because it's you and your wife mm -hmm. and you guys are all in because you have to be yep you're passionate about what you're doing and I would imagine if you go home it's sometimes hard to separate and have a totally unique different conversation outside of what is top of mind which is business so exactly how do you and do my that? wife is much better at that than me and I'm learning because she'll be like stop talking she cuts it and stop talking yeah. and well, that's because women can multitask. Guys yes. are like unimodal. They, they yes. focus on whatever they focus so, on. So she's good at that, and I'm trying to be better yeah. and more self-aware of that because yeah. there's. here's a good thing of advice. Don't let the little things eat you up because when you're an owner, you're so detail-oriented. Like in the big picture, get to that, but don't let it eat you up, right? right. It, 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 in the scale of things, it doesn't matter. It's nothing, yeah. Because as... An entrepreneur, everything will eat you up if you let it, right? Because yeah. you want it to be perfect, and you want it to be the best all well, the it's time. Well, an extension of you, in a sense. Yes. Right. Extension of your vision, extension of your personality, extension of a lot. And rejection sucks, right? Mm -hmm. But failure is also bad. If it's perceived because of choices you made that could have been different, yes. Um, it's easy to beat yourself up as an entrepreneur, for so, sure. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and you've got to, like I said, take care of your health. Like, yeah when you get outside of the work, which we do, like we have to set a time, like don't email me, everybody, f I'm out of the office on Monday, Tuesday, like unless it's life-threatening, don't, don't contact yeah, don't me. Don't do it. Yeah, so, and then also I think the good thing too we're learning is like let one of us take a weekend, go have a girls weekend, like get out of here, I can handle the. Really it, important. So, really important. so it's learning those things, yeah. those balances. So, yeah. is there anything we haven't covered you'd like to share with the audience? Jeez, I don't know. Um, we've covered a lot. Uh, I would just say, come and, and try some blinking owl for yourself. It's. I hope you can taste the heart and the effort we put in everything. Um, it's pretty. Amazing. We believe we're making a really good product um, that's high quality that you can feel good about drinking. Um, yeah. And you know we're transparent. If you come to the distillery, say hi. Uh, we're usually there. <laughs> so nice. Um, and the only other thing I would say, especially to somebody in this, this going back to one of your earlier questions, one thing I didn't realize with this business is it's like we're running three separate businesses, and that's what I was not prepared for. Tasting room hospitality is its own business. Right. Um, production manufacturing, the actual spirits things sourcing toppers glass another business and then now building the distribution or sales network is an entirely different business mm -hmm. so um, you got to treat it that way and, and don't feel like you have to be the expert in everything it's where you got to find the people to to be who are the experts to help you so. right
That's awesome. That's great advice. Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing to say. Where can they learn more about you again? Um, how can they Blinking find you? Distillery.com. Okay. Um, there's pretty good write-ups on our team, founders. Um, man, I hate to say this, but find a good attorney because oh, yeah. we, we love our attorney. He, pretty sure I'm paying for his daughter's college education, <laughs> but I wouldn't have it any other Damn way. Damn attorneys. <laughs> yeah. Good ones are great. Yeah. Um, they save you from oh, making yeah. more mistakes than you probably would. Indeed, indeed. But yeah, BlinkingOwlDistillery.com, at BlinkingOwlOnline. Um, yeah. Brian, thanks for coming on. Hey. Enjoyed your journey. Thank this you. This stuff's amazing. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for having me. That's it from beyond. Everybody, you got to go to the Blinking Owl. I've been there. They're just amazing people. In fact, one of the guys just had an encyclopedia knowledge of everything uh, that we were experiencing there. And so your, your, your crew is top notch and they're Thank well trained you. and uh, they're awesome. it's, it's a great group. So go check out Blinking Out. And if you're an investor looking to make an investment, I think you need another 600,000 yeah, in this about, round. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So let's spread the joy, spread the word. If you're interested in investing, you know how to contact Brian. Yep, it's simple. Uh, you could email info at blinkingowl.com. It will get sent to me and you know, we can talk. Awesome. Info blinkingl.com. That's it from Beyond. Thanks for uh, watching. Uh, you can learn more about Beyond on uh, Beyond Ben Bobo on YouTube and on our website, beyondbenbobo.com. Until next time, uh, remember, becoming is better than being. Awesome. Thanks, Thank man. You, sir. That was awesome.